cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 31st, 2011. Oh, can you believe tomorrow's the first day of September? Now, now here in Indiana, the kids are already back in school. I think in other parts of the country, they wait until after Labor Day. Not much time left there, folks. A lot of these seeker-driven churches will be having their fall kickoffs, and the heresy hurricane season will be in full swing. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and all of that's needless. Because, well, we have the Bible. <clears throat> and, in case you're wondering how to properly wield this thing, uh, we also have, uh, well, the historic Christian faith laid out for us as it was defended in the writings of the ancient church fathers. Now, that doesn't mean that the ancient church fathers are inspired or that they're inerrant. But it's important to take a hard look at how the church has properly understood the scriptures and what they have seen as the main theme of the scriptures as compared to what we're hearing nowadays. As a result of it, uh, when people start to deviate from what the church has taught and confessed from the beginning, well, then we've got a real problem. And unfortunately, we've got a real problem. <laughs> Do I sound redundant? It's because we have a real problem. And so, anyway, we chronicle that here on this program and do the comparative work, showing you what the Scriptures teach and also, in some cases, showing you what the Church has confessed that the Scriptures teach um, you know, along the way. Because it's important to take a look at these things, because when somebody has a significant difference with what the Church has taught historically, well, then there's a problem, a big, 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 big problem, because the ancient Church, <clears throat> despite some of its, uh, some of its uh, problems— uh, well, that is, is caused by the fact that we're all sinners. Really, really was uh, you know took great pains to uh, to make sure that their teaching was in accord with what the scriptures taught, and they were very meticul meticulous and methodical in the way that they handled the scriptures. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's something to keep in mind there. Anyway, 
Let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to start off with something that's just uh, bizarre. And uh, one of my uh, listeners uh, posted this on my Facebook wall and just had to cover it. So we're going to be listening to a segment from Sid Roth's program, um, uh, It's Supernatural, and uh, listening to the claims of a a gal by the name of Ruth Fonzell, who claims that... well, she's got supernatural um, violin playing abilities, and so we're we're going to take a look at that. Um, we've got uh, the the uh, the piece I wanted to get to on Monday that we didn't get to yet, and that is uh, Perry Noble. Uh, prepare yourself self for the four points of attack and leadership. And uh, yeah, what I find over and again with these seeker driven guys, since their methodologies actually cannot be substantiated in the scripture, cannot be found in the scriptures, and in many cases they're found to be in direct contradiction and violation of what the scriptures teach regarding what the pastoral office, uh, the duties of the pastoral office, and what the pastor is supposed to do in dispensing those duties. Well, they, these guys claim they're getting visions from God. You know, God gave me a vision to do church this way or that way. And. And if you challenge the vision, well, you're challenging God himself. And so uh, <clears throat> when you start talking like that, well, you're automatically going to get people in the church going, wait a second, hold on. Did you really get a vision from God or are you just self-deluded? And and, and they're, they're going to um, chime in. Well, don't worry. I mean, if, if you are a vision-casting pastor, Perry Noble has given you four points that you need to prepare yourself uh, you know, in, 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 in attacks on your visionary leadership. So we're going to be taking a look at that article. Well, it's been a while since we've had a Biologos update, but we have a Biologos up to date. And I'm naming this segment, in t- it's called Certainty Bad, Ambiguity Good. Certainty Bad, Ambiguity Good. Now, what I find interesting, and I'll kind of give you a as to what I you know what I'm going to think about this or what I'm going to say about it is is that why is it that the biologos uh, folks want us to be you know want us to have uncertainty with the when it comes to the Bible and and want us to embrace ambiguity as to what the Bible means but they want us to be certain about um, evolution and unambiguous regarding evolution don't you find that a little weird Anyway, and so, uh, and then I'll uh, give the last word to Albert Muller in his latest piece entitled "Adam and Eve: Clarifying What Is at Stake." And then for our sermon, we're going to go down to uh, Springfield, Missouri, and uh, Tommy Sparger has uh, started a, a new sermon series uh, where he's talking about the uh, the cogent issues raised by Rob Bell's book "Love Wins," and uh, you're going to see for yourself uh, another example of what's happening. As Rob Bell's book is being injected into the mainstream of American evangelicalism, and Tommy Sparger just is not biblically literate enough to uh, properly address the issue. And so, yeah, that becomes painfully clear as uh, he preaches this sermon entitled Hell's Bells, and the name of the sermon is What the Hell. Don't get mad at me for saying that. That's the name of the sermon. But anyway... So we got a lot of ground to cover today, and um, this this first segment's crazy enough that I should play this. Warning. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Yes, they are. Uh, yeah, that can mean only one thing. Somebody from the Patricia King gang is going to get some radio time here at Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, boy, that is absolutely the case. Um, hmm, 
Now we've we've covered some segments uh, from uh, Sid Roth's program entitled "It's Supernatural," so that's what we're going to be listening to. Uh, so he- here we go. Here's here's the lead-in for the program. My guest was actually handed a violin bow from Jesus. Yeah, I'm not buying it already. <laughs> really. So she was handed a violin bow from Jesus himself. Okay. Now, when she plays, people are physically, emotionally, and spiritually healed. No way. Is th- yeah. All right. So that that's the lead-in for the program. Uh, let me fast forward through the uh, you know through the opening segment so that uh, we can uh, just skip over the opening segment here. Hello, Sid Roth here. Welcome to my world, where it's naturally supernatural. (laughs) Uh, You don't want to know what I'm thinking. Anyway. My guest, when she plays the violin, people have face-to-face encounters with God. Really? Huh. She literally prophesies over people when she plays her violin. Man. You'll see what I mean. At age nine, she started playing, and she uh, studied in Paris, and uh, she she also played for the Toronto Symphony. So she's a professional violin player. Just want to let you all know that. She's been playing since she was nine. So it's not like she was complete, you know, a complete noob when it comes to playing the violin when supposedly Jesus gave her this bow. She's, uh, well, she's an accomplished violinist already. Okay. We continue. And uh, Ruth Fazel, it seems to me a turning point in your life was when you went to the Toronto Airport Church and there was a time in which you were presented a bow of a violin. Tell me about that. Yeah, Toronto Airport Church. That's the home of the so-called Toronto Blessing. Remember the so-called Holy Laughter revival, Rodney Howard Brown? Let us bubble up from your belly. You know, that that guy. And, you know, by the way, uh, that that's like ground zero for some of the worst heretics out there. Um, I think of Patricia King, Todd Bentley, and uh, others um, that are associated with the so-called Toronto blessing did basically a hotbed of uh, false doctrine and stuff all blamed on God the Holy Spirit that was a very special evening it was um, it was sort of the early days For a violinist I can't think yeah, of anything yeah, yeah. more special <laughs> yeah. um, it was the early days of the renewal and um, I I'd been there at the meeting and it was the end of the meeting now the meetings tended to go on really long right well the, the ministry time went on really long, and I was right at the back of the church, and I'd been prayed for. I was out on the... Yeah, that, uh, she'd been prayed for as code for somebody you know, smacked her upside the head, and she got slain in the spirit and was flat on the floor. floor, just kind of enjoying God's presence. And I'm laying there, and I have my eyes closed, and I, I felt like I saw Jesus walking towards me um, in the room. And... He was holding something, and I'm looking and seeing what it was, and it was like, it was a bow. He was just holding it like this, and and he walked. So Jesus appeared and was holding a violin bow. Oh my God! It's up to me, and he said, "Ruth, this one's for you." Hmm. 
And um, I, I just, I knew that he was giving me something new, but I didn't understand it. Like lots of things, I suppose, when, when God does something. So, so he was giving you something new, but you don't know what that meant. What was the point of him showing up then? It, but it definitely was, in, in amidst all of that was going on in the renewal anyway, there was so much that was new. And uh, but, but then a couple of years later, he explained. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. That's right. A couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of years later, he explained that because I was unclear what that meant. So he showed up and and then he explained it. Mm, okay. Um, I was home. It's just a regular, normal morning. I'd just taken my daughter to school. I came home, and I just felt like the Lord said to me, Ruth. It's time for a new bow. And thinking, what well, you just gave me a bow, you know? And um, so anyway. So he shows up again and decides to give her another bow, a new bow. Okay. And then, then he, he said, reach out and take it. So I put my hands up to take this bow. And it's like I received it. It was the weight of it. Like... A good kind of a weight, not 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 a bad weight, like a uh-huh. good weight, not a bad weight. Well, 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 like know, the like the glory, the weight of the glory. Yeah, it was it. an anointing. It was the glory, but I think there was a responsibility. Yeah, Sid Roth providing his own commentary and interpretation of this uh, a spiritual event. So handed to you with this I, mantle, I and did he speak to you? And what did he say? Yes, he did. He said, um, "Ruth." This bow is a bow of healing, righteousness, and forgiveness. A bow of healing, righteousness, and forgiveness. Hmm. All the things that are supposedly attributed to Christ's cross. Hmm. Why would he transfer it from the cross, something objective in history, to just the supernatural subjective event that we can't verify one way or another? I mean, we don't know if she was suffering from low blood sugar uh, we don't know if uh, she forgot to take her meds, uh, you know, but uh, okay, so I'm supposed to believe that if this is really Jesus, that he's transferred over the meaning of the cross to this bow. Mm-hmm. I just, again, color, color me skeptical. Forgiveness. And like most things, you know, when God, I need, for me anyway, when God first speaks to me, I always have to try and figure out what he's what's he saying yeah i'm kind of trying to figure that out too myself i mean we're both in the same morass if you would i could sort of understand that because i was already seeing those kinds of things happening when i was playing righteousness yeah what's that all about yeah yeah you know righteousness that's yeah mm -hmm. forgiveness yeah now i'm starting to understand those other two so you're just now starting to understand it hmm uh, much better now. Uh, when, when we come back, you're going to find out when she plays over Holocaust survivors, what happens. But what? Ruth, I'd like you to go to the music set and I'd like you to, you see, she plays spontaneous music. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like, so she plays in tongues. Okay. Uh, she's going to play a selection called Dawn. Okay, so here's an example of uh, Ruth Fazel's um, spontaneous spiritual violin playing that is capable of healing uh, righteousness and forgiveness. Okay, here we go. 
Oh, wait, wait. Sorry. Sorry, I, I grabbed the wrong audio there. Uh, uh, bad me. Bad, bad, bad. Okay, <clears throat> let's try this again. Here is um, Ruth Fazel um, uh, and her um, spiritually... Um, uh, well, yeah. The, the, see if you feel any righteousness, healing, and uh, forgiveness, and if you're healed of anything while listening to this song entitled "Dawn." Like I'm listening to the New Age station. And literally, they're showing people raising their hands in worship as she's playing. I, I'm not feeling nothing. You know that whole story about the golden bow? Hmm. You know, it reminds me of, uh, of, a, of a song I once heard. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sawing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. See, a fiddle of gold. Yeah, I just, you know, weird. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret, because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, you're awesome up your bow and playing fiddle hard, because hell's broke loose in Georgia, and the devil's dealing cards. And if you win, you get the shiny fiddle made of gold, but if you lose, the devil gets your soul. All right, okay, um, back to Ruth Fazel here. I think I figured out what this uh, this violin music heals. Um, if you're suffering from insomnia, this will heal you right up. You know, I'm pretty sure they could probably sell this to prisons to quell prison riots. I should, this would calm those uh, those prison riots right down. A couple of uh, folks who know something about violin music who uh, you know, t- talked to me on Facebook today. They said, you know, her technique isn't bad. It's 
I mean, there's not much expression to it, and doesn't exactly. You know, it's not exactly what I would consider the finest specimen of um, a violin playing. Which kind of leads to this question. Okay, so you know, here's the deal. I mean, if Jesus is going to take all the time, you know, to you know, to make a golden bow and travel here to meet with Ruth Fazel and then give her the bow and not really explain exactly what all this is supposed to mean. Um, and, you know, don't you think that if he's really going to give her some, you know, spiritual violin playing chops, that, I mean, that her playing would at least rise to the level of, you know, like Itzhak Perlman? Yeah, um, you know, uh, here's some samples of Itzhak Perlman playing. We'll just put these alongside of um, Ruth Fazel, And let's see if we can figure out, you know, really who's, who's a more divine player, if you would. By the way, this is Itzhak Perlman playing uh, uh, Paganini's uh, Caprices, uh, number one, five, and 24. Recorded in 1972, by the way. out of bounds here. I, I think Itzhak still can really take uh, um, Ruth Fazel. In fact, I mean, don't you think that would be the bigger miracle if you know, somebody like Ruth Fazel, who's kind of a so-so okay um, performer, you know, all of a sudden became like, you know, Itzhak Perlman in their ability. All right, back to, uh, here's Ruth Fazel again. Here we go. I still don't understand why anybody in the audience thinks this is a spiritual. I'm not feeling nothing here. Except for a little bit sleepy. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Apparently this is supernatural stuff here. Are, Are you feeling it? Maybe I'm just not spiritual enough. <sighs> Hang on a second here. I need something. The opened up his case and he said, I'll start this show. And fire flew from his fingertips as he rolled up his bow. And he pulled the bow across the strings and it made an evil hiss. And then a band of demons joined in and it sounded something like this. Why is it that 
the demons can play a better fiddle than uh, Ruth Fazel. I, I don't understand. I thought Jesus really gave her a supernatural gift here. All right, hang on. Back to Ruth Fazel. This sounds like New Age music. What exactly makes us Christian again? We'll be right back to oh boy. It's okay. Supernatural. Wait till you hear this commercial. When Ruth Fazzle plays her violin and worships, the atmosphere of heaven fills the room. Oh, brother. I, oh, no. I'm going to have to make another Marty Python out of this. Okay, so th- when she plays and worships, the atmosphere of heaven fills the room. Great. Let, let's find out what the practical applications of this heavenly worship is. Here, here we go. People sense a new intimacy with God. Really? Anxiety is replaced with peace. A- anxiety is replaced with peace. Many are healed. Lives are dramatically transformed. Uh-huh. Yeah, I didn't feel anything. Call now to get two audio CD albums by Ruth Fazzle, Joy in the Night, and Songs from the River, Volume 2. 23 anointed songs for a donation of... They're not just any old kind of songs. They're anointed songs. $35. Ask for offer number 9109. Shipping and handling is included. People who have listened to Ruth's worship music have been set free from anxiety and fear. They've been healed of gout. Healed of sleep disorders. That's right. The bunions have just disappeared. Released from despair and emptiness. Deli- yeah, the the itching of hemorrhoids has gone away. Delivered from demonic activity and addictions. Set free from burdens, depression, and even thoughts of suicide. Oh, man. I... Ah. What do they say? How, did, how does that saying go? There's a fool born... Uh, there's a, yeah, every second, something like that. Anyway, let's uh, continue. Dreams and visions. Sense the presence and glory of God. This is Sid's favorite soaking music. That's right. He soaks to this while in the bathtub. Don't miss out on getting two audio CD albums by Ruth Fazzle, Joy in the Night, and Songs from the River, Volume 2. 23 anointed songs for... Songs from the River. They're all wet. A donation of $35. Ask for offer number 9109. Shipping and handling is included. Or you can write to Sid Roth. It's Supernatural. Post Office Box... Yeah, well, I remember. There's a sucker born every minute. That's right. That's right. If you if you need help with your bunions, your hemorrhoids, uh, gout, or whatever, this is the CD for you. 1918 Brunswick, Georgia 31521. Please specify offer number 9109 or log on to sidroth.org. Uh, who gets lost in all of this? Jesus Christ and him crucified for sins, the proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, you, you you ever heard the uh, statement about you know the 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 phrase about being distracted by bright shiny objects? Yeah, that is exactly what's going on here. We're being distracted away from Christ and Him crucified for our sins, and for what? Utter and complete silliness. I mean, this isn't biblical stuff. This isn't pointing us to Christ. This isn't sound biblical doctrine. These are people just talking about their experiences and. And this idea of supernatural violin playing, well, I heard that from the Charlie Daniels band when I was a kid. When the devil finished, Johnny said, well, you're pretty good, old son. But sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done. Fire on the mountain, run, boys, run. 
devil's in the house of the rising sun. Chicken in the bread pan, picking out dough. Granny says you don't like no child, no. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Follow me on Facebook or Twitter. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today, and thank you for your support. We're back. Warning. People claiming to receive supernatural violin-playing powers from God or from Jesus probably haven't. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us financially by visiting our website fightingforthefaith.com when you get there you'll see two friendly yellow buttons one says donate the other says join our crew when you join our crew you're signing up to automatically contribute six dollars 95 cents on a monthly basis 
to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. It really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. Uh, that's right. It means it's time for a Perry Noble update. It's been a while since we've had an update on Perry Noble. You know, they're doing everything they can to pack them in over there at um, New Spring in uh, Anderson, South Carolina. Yeah, they're doing a sex sermon series. So brave of them. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flair. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and sufferific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a scene. Yeah, all right, yeah, I, I enjoy our Perry Noble update music uh, from the movie Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Um, anyway, <clears throat> this is uh, the headline of this reads: "Prepare yourself for the four points of attack in leadership." Yeah, that's right, and you know it's got missiles. It's it, the, the <laughs> this is from SermonCentral.com, and this was uh, published just a couple of days ago on August 29, twenty eleven. Written by Perry Noble. Prepare yourself for the four points of attack in leadership. Hmm. It's kind of weird. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't the job of a pastor to serve, not rule? The job of a pastor is to serve and shepherd and feed and care for Christ's sheep. Um, so it's kind of weird that a man who, uh, well, um, bills himself as a pastor to pastors is writing a, well, a piece telling them to look out for the four points of attack in leadership, you know, as if somehow leadership is, um, well, um, you know, that the job is for them to rule, to reign, to drive, to, yeah, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, <clears throat> Perry Noble, <clears throat> saying it with a flair, writes, he says, I've been reading through the Sermon on the Mount lately, and what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12 has really stood out. As a leader in ministry, we are going to be attacked, especially if we are having an impact in the areas in which we are planted. I want to go over uh, four areas in which leaders will be attacked and talk about how to handle it. Um, okay, hang on a second here. So he says he's been reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, hang on, i got to whirl up my uh, computerized Bible. Of course, you know, yeah, that's, that's the kind of person I am. I have a computerized version of the Bible. By the way, I use Accordance for the Macintosh. Um, I do like Logos, uh, um, the, although um, there's still some things I'm not – as far as my daily reading is concerned, it's, it's not there for me as far as the language tools are concerned. Anyways, uh, here's what Jesus said is in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm reading from the ESV. That would be the English Sanctified Version. At least that's what I lovingly refer to it. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. doesn't say anything about leadership here. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Hmm. Okay. 
Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Whose account? The account of Christ. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for us. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, Okay, so the picture here in the Sermon on the Mount is of people who are being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, being persecuted for the name, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the, um, the analogy... Uh, that Jesus, because he says they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did the prophets rule and reign? No, the prophets uh, many times were persecuted. They were lowly people who were called to go and call Israel back from idolatry, back to worshiping this true God, to be repent of their idolatries and to be forgiven. That that that's so. I don't. I, are there any instances of any? prophets in the Old Testament who reigned, who ruled. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, It it doesn't make any sense. So apparently Perry Noble, when he reads about persecution, immediately he's thinking in the terms of purpose-driven vision-casting leadership, which is what he teaches. He teaches that you are going to receive a vision from God, Pastor, if you prepare yourself to receive that vision. And then when you receive the vision from God, he's going to show you specifically how to do church in a particular cultural context. But And your job is to cast the vision to a leadership team whose job is to get behind you and get behind the vision and make that vision come into being. That's not the leadership model that um, that the Bible teaches, number one. The leadership model taught in the scriptures is one of servant leadership. If you really want to get technical, the Greek term there for servant, doulos, means slave. The pastor is the slave of Christ and the slave of the body of Christ. They are there to serve. But that's not what Perry Noble teaches or believes or whatever or even practices. So so when he reads Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, <laughs> he's talking about people who are attacking you and the vision that you've received. Anyway, so area number one, Perry Noble writes, he says, uh, is your motives. There's no way around it. People are going to question why you do what you do. And the more success you see in ministry, the more people will question your motives. So let me be clear. You can't win this fight. The only thing you can do is consistently check your heart and make sure that you are listening to the voice of God and doing what he says. Hmm. So let me see if I have this right, Perry. Um, I'm So you're telling leaders to, quote, check their hearts? to see if they're hearing and listening to the voice of God? Hmm, rather than checking their Bibles. Hmm, that tells me something, that you are into subjective uh, uh, doctrine and teaching rather than objective. You place the two side by side. Subjective always wins. It's kind of weird how that happens. Anyways, he says, um, we can lie to people, but we can't lie to him. He knows our hearts. Yes, that's right. And you're sinful and wicked and their heart is deceitfully evil. You, you don't want to trust that thing. Anyway, one day our motives, if impure, will be exposed because he will not be mocked. Okay. In reality, most people who question your motives don't have a freaking clue where you came from. They don't know what you've put up with, the sleepless nights you've gone through, the personal sacrifices you've made to get where you are, and you can't waste your time explaining those things to them because they'll accuse you of pride and accusation you can't really defend. 
you need to ask yourself the following questions when it comes to why you do what you do. One, am I allowing Jesus or my personal desires to shape my motives? Is this desire in me a passion that will enlarge his kingdom or a cool idea that will allow me to become more popular? Are my motives being shaped as I study the scriptures or does God's word conflict with what I want? Are the godly people that the Lord has placed in my life rebuking me or affirming me? Now, here's the funny thing. Um, yeah, I'd like to know how he defines that the Lord has placed in his life. He says, are the godly people the Lord has placed in my life rebuking me or affirming me? Um, because when you look at the prophets, and that's the example Jesus points to in Matthew chapter 5, um, they are always, that many times they are persecuted and considered outsiders and their words are rejected. And you know, people, you know, the kings and the people of Israel don't consider them to be people that the Lord has placed in their life. So, I mean, apparently he, he has found that uh, a way of defining the people the Lord has put in my life as basically meaning nobody who's an outsider, nobody who speaks really critically, no, nobody who points to the Bible, nobody, no, 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 no. It's got to be my immediate peers, people I've surrounded myself with. And just, just something I've noticed about Perry Noble. Anyway, he says, am I doing what I do because I love Jesus and people or because I love myself and see all of the personal gain I can achieve from this? Am I doing this for attention from others or affirmation from my heavenly father? Okay, so number two, the, the, this is a telling one, by the way. The, the area where you're going to get attacked as a leader is in your doctrine. Number two, most people who come into your church will say they want you to teach them from the Bible, but often... What they really mean is that they want you to teach from the way they see the Bible and from the translation they prefer as well. So we are told in Scripture to watch our life and our doctrine closely. Yes, that's First Timothy chapter 4, 16. We are told that teachers will be judged more strictly. Yep, that's James chapter 3, verse 1. And God takes his word seriously, and so should we. Revelation chapter 22, 18 through 19. Yes, however, we cannot teach another person's theological convictions as our own. Now, did you catch that, by the way? We cannot teach another person's theological convictions as our own? Hmm. We must study the scriptures, seek wise counsel, pray, read, and then own what we teach. Hmm. Yeah, no. The The goal of sound doctrine is to teach what the scriptures teach. Period. Which means you're gonna ha- you might have to wrestle and debate regarding how a text is to be understood. But, um, hmm. yeah, it's not my theology, it's not my doctrine, it's not your doctrine, it's, it's Christ's doctrine and what his word teaches. Yeah, we uh, as Christians ought to strive to have no peculiar doctrine of our own, instead only that doctrine which the scriptures truly teach and that the church has confessed from the beginning. If it's new, I'm going to tell you, it 99.9999999999% of the time it's untrue. So, yeah, um, it's weird because, you know, again, Perry here is kind of appe- appealing to some kind of a subjective thing. Anyway, you know, it just doesn't surprise me, though. Understand that when we do this, we are going to be uh, – the, the, we are going to be uh, – People who disagree with what they're going to be people who disagree with what we teach. This is okay as long as we know that we are making every effort to be as theologically sound as we as we can. And we've got to understand as well that godly men and women who really love Jesus have been on both sides of most major theological arguments. So apparently the truth doesn't matter as long as you try hard. 
See, when it comes to theology, God basically doesn't care what conclusions you've come to as long as you've put in a lot of effort. That's that's how I read this. Anyway, one of the things I often tell people at New Spring Church is that I will not lead them astray when it comes to theology or food. We take doctrine seriously. Every message we prepare takes hours to shape, and then I gather godly men and women around me who diligently search the Scriptures and hold me accountable on the doctrine that is being taught. Hmm. I wonder if that's a new thing. Anyways, we've had some very likely theological, uh, lively theological conversations in these meetings. We've got to take what we teach people seriously along with the understanding that no matter how much time we put into the message, there will always be people who disagree with what we say. But when people do question us, it gives us a chance to either know what we believe or go back and research to see if our convictions are owned by us or if they're just a cool concept. Number three, your leadership style. By the way, you don't get to pick a leadership style. That's picked for you by the Bible and the seeker-driven, purpose-driven leadership model style. That's not taught in the scriptures. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Just want to let you know that, Perry. But at number three, your leadership style. He says, I'm a student of growing churches. I don't care what denomination they are, where they are located, or what architecture looks like. If people are being reached for the kingdom, I want to see what's going on. I've crawled on a lot of planes and made tons of phone calls. And the one thing I've discovered is that hardly any of these churches are similar in leadership styles. Hmm. Now, let me be very clear. Godly leadership is essential for a church to have a kingdom impact. Look at what happened to the nation of Israel in the book of Judges when they didn't have godly leadership. But I believe each church must wrestle with the scriptures and personalities that are present and allow the Lord to show them the best way to structure for maximum effectiveness. Hmm. Maximum effectiveness. Uh, That's kind of weird because the Bible actually lays down the leadership model for pastors. The, the the word itself, pastor, tells you the leadership model. It's one of serving, of feeding, of caring, and tending, and protecting. That's why they're called pastors. Hmm. Yeah, the, the, uh, the goat herding um, and cattle driving leadership models are not expressed in the scriptures. Just want to make it clear. Anyway, you can read more of this on uh, on the Sermon Central blog if you want to. But number four is your ministry methods. People are going to question how you do things, no matter how you do them, by the way. People question the ministry methods of Jesus. I would say that if people aren't asking questions and getting offended, then you're not being like Christ. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. So if, you're not, if, you're, if your ministry methods aren't causing controversy, then you're not like Jesus. Uh, that's the weirdest application of the what would Jesus do slogan I've ever heard in my life. Anyways, it, um, he says, Jesus was always healing on the Sabbath, which was considered to be a sin. Yeah, but it wasn't. They falsely considered it to be a sin. Um, think about that. We were uh, There were people who actually accused Jesus of sin because his ministry methods didn't match up with their personal preferences. Yeah, again, um, Perry... Um, Ministry methods and personal preferences, you basically make it sound like ministry methods are completely up for grabs. Just do whatever you feel the Spirit leading you to do. And if anyone says that, well, that's wrong, well, that's just because they're, they, they, don't, they have a personal preference for a different kind of methodology. Um, you'll find very clearly that the Bible does teach a leadership model. And does teach methods very clearly. These are the doctrines of ecclesiology. You can find them in most systematic theologies. I recommend that you get one and read it, Perry. Um, yeah, it, isn't it weird that all of these guys always, always, always try to deflect criticism 
that is leveled against them by basically accusing the person of leveling the criticism of them having a preferred theology that's of their own making, a preferred leadership model that's only a personal preference, a preferred methodology that is only a personal preference, as if the Bible has absolutely zero anything to say about any of these topics, as long as the pastor has received a vision from God and is doing their best and putting in a good college effort, that's all that matters. And if they're causing controversy, all the better. That's more like Jesus. Hmm. This is a foreign, foreign, foreign leadership model that Perry Noble is uh, is one of the prognosticators of. And this is not the, the model that was modeled or taught by Jesus and was modeled and taught by his disciples. Just saying. You might want to look it up. You ever heard of the pastoral epistles? They are First and Second Timothy and Titus. I strongly recommend that you read them. All right, I'm moving along here. I want to get this in. Uh-huh. She loves a monkey, Uncle. Yeah, yeah. She loves a monkey, Uncle. Whoa, whoa. And the monkeys, Uncle, they form me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. The monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle, they for me. They for me. me. All right, yeah, that can mean only one thing. It's going to be a Biologos update. It's been a while since we've done a Biologos update. If you're not familiar with the Biologos Forum, these are a group of neoliberals that are basically trying desperately to meld Christianity to evolutionary theory. Basically saying, listen, listen, just chuck these pieces of the Bible, reinterpret them so that we can embrace evolutionary theory and Christianity because those evolu- we don't we, Christianity is being mocked and not believed by people because we believe that God created the world in six literal days. And don't you know how don't that's embarrassing. And so you just need to stop believing the Bible and taking it so literally there wasn't a historical Adam and Eve. No, 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 no. That's just a metaphor. God didn't really create the world in six days. That's just a metaphor. And don't you understand the Genesis story? It's just a poem anyway. It's not trying to explain origins or anything like that. No, no, we can... We can all be happy and get along together, and then we won't have our scientific friends making fun of us <laughs> and telling us that we're a bunch of backwoods, toothless hicks. <clears throat> yeah, that's kind of uh, that's really I think what's going on here. But uh, anyway, Biologos said uh, that from the today's um, blog, there they they have a, a new video. Uh, the blog heading reads: "A leap of truth requiring certainty." And so I've named the segment Certainty Bad, Ambiguity Good. And here's the video that the Biologos Forum put up, uh, t- basically trying to convince people of faith that, um, no, no, stop, stop looking for certainty and embrace ambiguity. Certainty bad, ambiguity good. Why? Because if you're ambiguous, if you, there's amb- ambiguity about what the Bible means, then we can park 
evolutionary theory right into the middle of our so-called Christian faith, and and uh, and then we can stop having the Bible get in the way of this of of us embracing evolutionary theory. Yeah, listen in. In our contemporary society, people want black and white answers. They want absolute certainty about things. And fundamentalisms, whether it's... Uh, by the way, that's the uh, Reverend Dr. John uh, Polkinghorn. He's a physicist. The fundamentalism of atheism or the fundamentalism of creationism does offer you the prospect, I think it's a false prospect, of, of, of certainty on those terms. And you don't handle ambiguity very well. You, know, you need crystal clarity on things. That invites a... This is uh, Dr. Peter Enns, an Old Testament scholar. Hyper-literalist mentality that I think has been sort of a partner of Protestant Christianity, particularly in the West and America. Do we believe? Yes. So now they're playing a movie from a black and white film that basically shows that that evil certainty people and this evil preacher who's mind-numbingly uh, taking over and manipulating poor, hapless souls into believing the Bibles to be taken literally. Do we believe the word? Yes. yes. Do we believe the truth of the word? Yes. yes. Do we curse the man who denies the word? Yes. The impulse to try to reduce the scripture to a single meaning comes out of a discomfort. Uh, by the way, that's Rabbi Steve Cohen. The impulse to reduce the Bible down to a single meaning. So, I mean, what's the opposite here? That uh, rather than re- oh, you don't want to reduce you don't want to reduce the Bible, do you? Oh, well, no, I don't want to reduce the Bible. I would I would hate to do that. Well, you're reducing it when you're trying to reduce it down to a single meaning. No, 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 no. You want to be. You want to embrace a more ambiguous uh, hermeneutic when it comes to the Bible so that one passage could have a hundred different meanings. It, it could be like Silly Putty or Play-Doh. You go out and you grab a piece of Play-Doh, and if you want, you can turn it into Mickey Mouse. And see, da-da! And if you want to, you can turn it into Donald Duck, da-da! Or you can mold it into a wax nose and bend it this way or that way. Or you can turn it into Versingelsic, you know, um. Hmm. Here's a question I have. Um, why is it that the folks at Biologos have so much certainty regarding evolutionary theory and they don't practice what they preach and instead um, embrace ambiguity when it comes to evolutionary theory? Hmm? Why is it that the Bible has to be reinterpreted in such an ambiguous way that it can mean whatever? But evolutionary theory can only have one reductionistic, simplistic understanding of it. Hmm? Just a question. And why is it that the BioLogos forum is now quoting Rabbi Steve Cohen? You know, as... as hmm. With complexity. Boiling complexity down to something simple that we can hang on to. We, by default, I think, do this unconsciously. We can't just have everything being chaotic and complex we have to kind of generalize and and, and bring things down and, and i think sometimes what we fail this is dr Kerry fulcher a biologist recognizes that we've done that we've generalized from the from the complex to get something that we can then kind of hold on to and we think that that is an absolute it's that way it has to be that way now now you're an absolutist when it comes to evolution right recognizing that we've generalized to bring it down to that way 
We want this sense of coherence. Where our Here comes Peter Enns again. Lives make some sense, and we're, we're all after that in different kinds of ways. And we use our faith sometimes to make those things happen. It leads to the assumptions that everyone thinks this way. And there are these sim simple answers to things. And, and we've always thought this way. And any thought that might move away or, or question some of those things, you know, we can tag it as liberal or tag it as atheistic. It kind of sets up a culture of warfare, if you will. That sort of fundamentalism is a very... Oh, no, a culture of warfare. We wouldn't want that. Isn't it weird that um, the Bible actually teaches that we are in a war and talks about our adversary, the devil, and talks about the weapons of our warfare? Hang on a second here. I'm going to look something up in my computerized Bible, and I need to. I want to tell it to search in the New Testament. Specifically, here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice that this guy was certain absolutely certain. He wasn't ambiguous at all. He was certain that um, warfare, right, wrong, you know, good, evil, that kind of thought, thinking, that, he was certain that that's bad. Um, he, here's what um, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Hmm. The weapons of our warfare. Now, he was, he was not ambiguous. He was absolutely certain that it's a bad thing to have a warfare mentality, yet the Bible teaches a warfare mentality. Hmm. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Hmm. Weird that the Bible teaches. You know, I, you know what my problem is, is I'm reducing the Bible down. Oh, see, I need, I need to not be so certain and, and embrace ang ambiguity and complexity so that this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that talks about the weapons of our warfare, that that really what that means, uh, the weapons of our warfare, that's not really talking about real warfare. That's a metaphor for hug. You know, that, that, so the, the, the arms of our hugs are not of the flesh but have divine power. Right. And, and not to destroy but to build up. You see, i got to embrace ambiguity so I can take this passage and make it mean whatever I want it to mean. Ah, uh, see, that's my problem. I'm taking it literally, man. See the problem here? All right, let's continue. Brittle position. The slightest crack and the whole thing shatters. Now, I'm, I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear him ta say this quote in context. Here, listen again. I get as atheistic. It kind of sets up a culture of warfare, if you will. That sort of fundamentalism is a very brittle position. The slightest crack and the whole thing shatters. Oh, yeah, see, see, I, again, fundamentalism is, it, it creates a brittle position. It's, it's just brittle. I mean, don't you understand? You, you don't want to, you don't want to take Christianity and, um, and, and, and make it so that the whole thing could just come tumbling down because of your, 
narrow-minded certainty about a that a particular passage is to be understood a particular way. For instance, you know, like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then we're preach our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You mean that kind of brittleness, right? Um, so brittle that if Christ hasn't literally bodily raised from the dead, then Christianity is a lie? Seems that the uh, that the truth is really that brittle, don't you think? Because here uh, the Apostle Paul is making it clear that that if Christ isn't raised, then our teaching is in vain, and your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And Christianity is uh, worthless. It's phony. It's false. It's a fraud. It's not true. Seems to me that the Bible actually teaches this brittle position, and rather than rejecting it as a weakness, that's actually one of Christianity's strengths. Produce the body of Christ, and you've overturned all of Christianity. And you say, well, that makes Christianity brittle and fragile. Yes, yeah, sure does. See, the truth is that way, isn't it? Really what happens is people have fear. They're afraid that if they let go of this really tight way of looking at things, then the only alternative is going to be irrationality and lack of control. Well, that's not true. I think actually you can let go of this really tight hold and step forward into richer things and think about things. that. And okay, that then why don't you let go of your tight hold of your certainty regarding evolution so that you can you know, embrace the richer things of ambiguity regarding origins? Hmm? The alternative isn't just quicksand where you disappear. The Christian gospel does want to give us a sense of confidence in the truth, and that is a very legitimate yearning and desire. But the earliest Christian writers have always linked that with the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately a faith statement. Uh, no, actually, the death and resurrection of Christ is not a faith statement. That is a statement of historical fact. And you don't have to be a Christian to affirm that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day. That, that in fact, just basically saying you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again doesn't make you a Christian. It's that he died and rose again for you, for the forgiveness of your sins and for your justification. That's faith. The fact that Jesus died and rose again, that's not a faith statement. That is a historical, that is a statement of historical fact. No faith necessary. We continue. Which is ultimately a faith statement. It is a truth which is bound to belief, to believing that Jesus rose from the dead, rather than from a scientific description of a certain reality that we can objectify then that becomes not a matter of faith and commitment in truth, but... Wait a second. How do you objectify any statement of history? Hmm? How do you objectify any statement of history? How, for instance, do you know with certainty that John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln? How do you know this? How do you objectify it? By the way, science... History is its own science. It has its own set of rules, has its own set of scientific methods that it employs. And when you employ the historical methods of the science of historiography, no faith necessary to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was an actual person of history. 
that according to the eyewitness biographers and eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and that the tomb was empty on the third day after he was crucified, and that over 500 eyewitnesses claimed to have seen Jesus alive and spent time talking with him and eating meals with him after he was dead and buried. That's all. It's not a faith statement. Those are all historical, objectively verifiable statements. Now, the question is, what does it mean that he died and rose again? What's the, what is the theological significance of Jesus' historical death and resurrection? The theological ex- uh, significance is what is believed by faith. That is what's believed by faith. As far as the, the actual events themselves, all, all verifiable objectively using the science of the historiography. What he's saying here is not true of certainty. Certainty is where we end up when we lose faith. Really? Where did you get that from? Because the scripture says that faith is being sure and certain of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Certainty is not when we lose faith. That's the very definition of faith. Who is this guy? Because we're too scared of what we think we know being wrong. and Oh, to- that's Rabbi Steve Cohen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So then you wouldn't believe the statements in, uh, in the book of Hebrews that says that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Certainty is not antithetical to faith. Faith is certainty and trust. It's weird that they would go, you know, Biologos here apparently is now going to a Jewish rabbi to to undermine and redefine faith in such a way that faith is the embracing of ambiguity and that certainty is the way of losing your faith. Man. And to me, that is the ultimate, that's death. Certainty's death. And, and you know, the, the people here get sick of me saying this, but you haven't heard me say it, so I'll say it again. But, you know, I say over and over and over again, I will always prefer a good question to a good answer. Then you have nothing to offer us, sir, because we don't need questions. We need answers to our questions. And the answer is in Christ and him crucified for our sins. Jesus Christ, the one prophesied in the Old Testament, God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, who died and rose again for our sins and for our justification and will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. These things are to believe be to be believed with certainty, not ambiguity. Interesting, you know, it's more proof to me that uh, bi- the BioLogos Forum is a dangerous organization designed really to destroy and ruin your Christian faith, rather than build it up and bring you to a deeper and richer understanding of what is taught in the scriptures. This is a competing, competing religion altogether. Anyway, um, and let's finish this off with a uh, an article from today's uh, albertmuller.com website. The headline reads, Adam and Eve clarifying again what is at stake. Albert Muller writes, it says, Recent evangelical discussion concerning Adam and Eve has served at least one good purpose. It has helped to clarify what is theologically at stake in this debate. The recent report by National Public Radio alerted the larger secular culture to the debate, but the debate is hardly new. 
What is new, however, is the candid admission on the part of some that the denial of a historical Adam requires a new understanding of the Bible's basic story and thus of the gospel as well. One of my recent articles, False Start, the controversy over Adam and Eve heats up, made this point clearly. As I argued there, the denial of a historical Adam means not only the rejection of a clear biblical teaching, but also the denial of the biblical doctrine of the fall, leading to a very different way of telling the story of the Bible and the meaning of the gospel itself. By the way, those who try to deny that Genesis requires the affirmation of a historic Adam as a real and singular human individual, arguing, for example, that the Hebrew word translated Adam means only the man, must face the fact that Genesis that the Genesis narrative clearly presents Adam as a singular individual who acts, speaks, marries, reproduces, and is listed even in the genealogy of Jesus. Hebrew vocabulary offers no escape hatch from historicity. The main point of my false start article, however, was that the denial of a historical Adam severs the essential point made by Paul in Romans 5 that says this, quote, starting at verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the, uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle Paul's way of telling the story of the Bible and the meaning of the gospel. If Adam was not a historical figure, and thus if there was no fall into sin, and all humanity did not thus sin in Adam, then Paul's telling of the gospel is wrong. Furthermore, Paul was simply mistaken to believe that Adam had been a real human being. Thus, the denial of a historical Adam means that we would have to tell the Bible's story in a very different way than the church has told it for centuries as the Bible has been read, taught, preached, and believed. If there is no historical Adam, then the Bible's meta-narrative is not creation, fall, redemption, new creation, but something very different. To his credit, Brian McLaren affirms this very truth and agrees that the denial of Adam's historicity requires a new way of telling the biblical story. But, and this is the essential point, he thinks this would be a very good thing. Responding to my article, McLaren wrote this, I firmly agree in an ironic sort of way with the good Dr. Muller. I think the conventional Constant, uh, Constantinian understanding of the gospel meta-narrative and the Bible storyline is wrong, misguided, and dangerous. We do, in fact, need an entirely new understanding, new, that is, compared to the status quo, but actually more ancient and primary than the conventional approach. In the process, we'd better learn what a meta-narrative actually is and realize that it's not actually a great label to apply to the gospel. The Bible's storyline is much better. That's what I've been writing and speaking about for the last decade and hope to keep advocating for and contributing to the next, uh, to for the next. Indeed, McLaren has been writing about and calling for just such a theological 
revolution. In his 2010 book, A New Kind of Christianity, McLaren explicitly denies that the Bible reveals Adam as a historical figure. He also denies that we should believe in a fall into sin that leads to a divine verdict against sinful humanity. In his words, speaking of the Genesis accounts, quote, It is patently obvious to me that these stories aren't intended to be taken literally, although it didn't used to be so obvious, and I know it won't be so now for many of my readers. It is also powerfully clear to me that these non-literal stories are still to be taken seriously in mind for their rich meaning, because they instill some time-tested multi-layered wisdom, though deep mythic language about our world came to be what it has become. Writing about Genesis 3, McLaren states, In this world, there is not one isolated moment of ontological shift from state to story. It's all story from beginning to end and likely before and after as well. God doesn't respond to a loss of perfect status with a furious promise of eternal condemnation, damnation, and destruction. God doesn't pronounce the perfect state ruined and the planet destined for genocide. The the, the experiment is not a failure. Hmm. A similar point was made by the writer known as RJS at Jesus Creed, the blog of the New Testament scholar Scott McKnight. RJS rejected my claim that a right understanding of Adam is necessary for a correct understanding of Christ and his atonement. Quote, I reject categorically the notion that having the right view of Adam or any specific view of Adam is a requirement for having the right view of Christ and his redeeming work in the world, she wrote. She is certainly right to argue that our understanding of creation is inherently and irreducibly Christological based in texts such as John 1 and Colossians 1. Nevertheless, this does not reduce in any way the importance of the Bible's affirmation of Adam as a historical figure and the fall as a historical event. Yet she also writes this, Frankly, I don't think that the Incarnation is a solution to a problem created by our original forefathers, whether two unique individuals created from the dust or a community who evolved into humans. I think the Incarnation was part of God's plan from the beginning. Uh, This is just stunning. The Old Testament clearly promises the coming of the one who will save his people from their sins. The Incarnation is impossible for us to understand in biblical terms without the central affirmation that Christ came to redeem his people from sin. As Paul writes in Galatians 4, uh, verses 4 through 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The context of God's eternality, omniscience, omniscience and sovereignty It is undeniable that the Incarnation was part of God's plan from the beginning, but it is also true that the creation of Adam and Eve and the fall of humanity into sin were also part of God's plan from the beginning. This truth, set within the context of God's eternality, omniscience, and sovereignty, has been affirmed, by the way, by both Calvinists and classical Arminians. Based upon the authority of the Scriptures, this has been the faith of the Church. I do genuinely appreciate an honest debate on these issues of undeniable and incalculable theological importance. The debate has served to clarify once again what is at stake. I can only end again where I ended the false start article. The denial of a historical Adam and Eve as the first parents of all humanity and the solitary first human pair severs the link between Adam and Christ, which is so crucial to the gospel. If we do not know how the story of the gospel begins, then we do not know what the story means. Make no mistake, a false start on the story produces a false grasp of the gospel. 
and I could not agree more with Dr. Mueller. Well said, and thank you, Lord, for uh, his contribution to this debate and fight that we are currently in, in the warfare that we are waging at the moment. Hey, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Sermon review next. Wait to hear what um, what's happening over there at Tommy Sparger's church regarding the book Love Wins by Rob Bell. It's very sad. Pray for him. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today and thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. This is going to give you an example of what's happening out there in the churches uh, post Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. From one of the major seeker-driven churches out there, North Point Church in Springfield, Missouri. Wait till you hear this. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via North Point Church, Springfield, Missouri. Tommy Sparger presiding. Now, the last sermon we reviewed of his was the Jaws sermon. Oh, what a miserable thing that was. I was close to uh, reviewing his sermon on E.T. 
the music video that went out with that sermon was just absurd. But anyway, today's sermon is entitled, Hell's Bells, What the Hell? That's what the name of the sermon is. You got a problem with it, take it up with Tommy Sparger. He's the one who came up with the sermon title. So we're going to find out what happens when a biblically illiterate, seeker-driven, vision-casting pastor uh, reads Rob Bell's book. Does the seeker-driven, purpose-driven, biblically illiterate, vision-casting pastor um, take notice and go, wait a second, that's not what the Bible teaches, and stand up and defend and boldly proclaim the historic Christian faith? With its doctrine regarding eternal punishment? <clears throat> well, if that's what you expect from Tommy Sparger, well, you're probably going to be very disappointed. All right, let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here's Tommy Sparger and um, Hell's Bells, uh, what the hell? Here we go. Hey, we want to welcome our East Sunshine campus. It's so good to have you guys with us today. And uh, it's just such a cool thing to be one church, but two locations. And I was with you at East Sunshine last week at 1230, and, and really that place is just rocking. So here, here's something we want to do. The Norton campus wants to join you in East Sunshine all at the same time. We're going to give you guys a big giant round of applause, but it's got to be sort of self-serving, and you have to clap for yourselves at the same time. So it's not the most humble thing, but just kind of get past it and Pray for forgiveness later, whatever you need to do. But here we go on the count of three. Let's give it up, free sunshine. One, two, three. Hey, listen, I want to jump right into this series that we're beginning today called Hell's Bells. And today is part one. Uh, it's an introduction, and, and really when it comes to this subject of hell, we're just kind of scratching uh, the surface today, and, and, and really we're going to do our best to answer some questions for the next few weeks and ask some questions and kind of go on a journey, and sometimes there's going to be unresolved tension, but, but one thing that I would ask you to do is commit to coming for the entire series before you draw complete conclusions. So uh, before you conclude, I'm a complete heretic. I mean, that's fine if you do. I mean, it doesn't hurt my feelings a whole lot. I'm getting used to it, but at least give me two or three weeks. Doesn't hurt, you don't. doesn't hurt his feelings. He's getting used to being called a heretic. That ought to worry you if your pastor says something like that don't mind. So listen, I, I, let me just start with this. I believe that people struggle with this idea of hell. And the reason that I believe people struggle with the idea of hell is because I struggle with the idea of hell. And, and I believe that we're talking about Christians and people that aren't Christians and atheists and believers and people from other religions. People struggle with this idea. People wonder and ask the question, and they have every right to ask this question. It's a good question. But how can you possibly reconcile the concept of judgment and hell with a loving God. I mean, what do you do with that? It, it makes no sense just, just from a heart perspective or an intellectual perspective. What, what, how do you reconcile these things? On the back cover of Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins, and whether you agree with him or not, still on the back cover of his book, he articulates really some thoughts that I think millions of people have and, and even a question that people have. And here's exactly what it says. God loves us. God offers us everlasting life by grace freely through no merit on our own part unless you do not respond the right way. And then God will torture you forever in hell. Huh? 
And that's the question that he asked. And, and truthfully, honestly, I think a lot of us would ask that question. I know millions of people are asking that question. Now, now let me just go ahead and, and tell you a few things about myself. Now, the question is, what has God revealed in his word? Not what Rob Bell cleverly came up with, what seems like a contradictory conceptual question that impugns the, uh, the character of God. Question is, what does God's word reveal regarding these things? Now, I'm going to argue backwards. A lot of times when you argue it, this is the wrong way to do it, okay? I'm going to start with what the church has said, okay? What people in the church have said. And I'm going to quote people from early on, okay? Now, this is not authoritative, but I'm going to point this out to show you what the church has thought regarding eternal punishment. And we're going to start with, of all things, the Athanasian Creed. There are what they call three ecumenical creeds. Now, the Athanasian Creed okay, is, is a 5th century creed. It was not written by Athanasius. It was named after him. And in the 4th century, that's when the big fight regarding the nature of Christ and the nature of God was fought between Arius and his followers and those who believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. And Athanasius of Alexandria was spearheading that fight, so to speak. Okay, Now, in the Athanasian Creed, okay, not only do we have a great, great, great summary of the doctrine of the Trinity that is fantastic, but it also, this is the, uh, this is the only ecumenical creed that we had that clearly and explicitly mentions um, eternal punishment, okay? Um, this, I'm going to read to you the first part of it and the last part of it. Here's what it says in the Athanasian Creed. Whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic, that means universal faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. So here in the Athanasian Creed in the 5th century already, we've got this concept of eternal punishment. Here's what it says at the end of this creed, and you'll notice this sounds like a lot like um, uh, language from uh, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Okay, here's what it says: For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so Christ, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence He will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. Those who have done good will go into eternal life. Those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Now, so we know from as early as the 5th century that Christians were confirming and confessing eternal punishment and describing eternal punishment as eternal fire. Well, is there other places that we can go to? The answer is yes. Now, I'm going to read these going you know, from the earliest to the latest, or the later, but I'm not going to read all of these. But uh, Clement, uh, Second Clement, uh, we read, uh, he wrote this letter about AD 150. This is uh, Clement's second letter. Here's what it says. Um, if we do the will of Christ, we shall obtain rest. But if not, if we neglect his commandments, nothing will rescue us from eternal 
punishment. That was written in AD 150. Second Clement also says this in chapter 17, verse 7, but when they see how those who have sinned and who have denied Jesus by their words or by their deeds are punished with terrible torture in unquenchable fire, the righteous who have done good and who have endured tortures and have hated the luxuries of life will give glory to their God, saying, There shall be hope for him who has served God with all of his heart. Justin Martyr, writing in the mid-2nd century, also writes, quote, No more is it possible for the evildoer, the avaricious, the treacherous to hide from God than it is for the virtuous. Every man will receive the eternal punishment or reward which his actions deserve. Indeed, if all men recognized this, no one would choose evil even for a short time, knowing that he would incur the eternal sentence of fire. That's from uh, Justin Martyr's first apology, uh, chapter 12. Okay. Justin Martyr also writes in the first apology, chapter 21, quote, We believe that they who live wickedly and do not repent will be punished in everlasting fire. Okay. This uh, document from the ancient church, uh, which is called the Martyrdom of Polycarp, chapter 2, verse 3 says this, Fixing their minds on the grace of Christ, the martyrs despised worldly tortures and purchased eternal life with but a single hour. To them the fire of their cruel torturers was cold. They kept before their eyes their escape from the eternal and unquenchable fire. Mothetes, in his letter to Diogenetus, writes this, quote, When you know what is the true life, that of heaven, when you despise the merely apparent death which is temporal, when you fear the death which is real and which is reserved for those who will be condemned to the everlasting fire, the fire which will punish even to the end those who are delivered to it, then you will condemn the deceit and the error of the world. So Mathetes, writing to Diogenetus, makes it clear that there's an everlasting fire which somebody will be condemned to. Now, where did these church fathers get these ideas from? Where did they get the idea that the wicked will, who do not repent will be punished in everlasting fire? By the way, there's another church father, Irenaeus of Leon. He writes in his book Against Heresies, quote, God will send the spiritual forces of wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates, as well as the impious, the unjust, the lawless, and blasphemous among men into everlasting fire. That was written in the late 2nd century. Irenaeus also writes in his book Against Heresies, uh, part 4, uh, verse 28, he says this, The penalty increases for those who do not believe the word of God and despise his coming. It is not merely temporal, but eternal. To whomsoever the Lord shall say, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the everlasting fire, they will be damned forever. Tertullian writes at the end of the second century, quote, After the present age is ended, he, Jesus, will judge his worshipers for a reward of eternal life and the godless for a fire equally perpetual and unending. Now, I could go on and quote Hippolytus, Ignatius of Antioch, Cyprian of Carthage, as well as a whole host of other ancient church fathers who clearly and explicitly say that there is 
that the punishment of the wicked is eternal punishment, and it consists of eternal fire. Now, where did they get these ideas from? This is what the church has confessed from the earliest church fathers uh, prior, well, actually after the writing of the New Testament. So where did these Christian guys, where did these church fathers get this idea from? Did they just pull it out of the sky? They didn't get it from, by the way, all these church fathers that I quoted, they all um, they all wrote long, long, long before Constantine. So they didn't get this from Constantine. Now, granted, the Athanasian Creed was written after Constantine, but you'll notice that what the Athanasian Creed confesses is consistent with what the early, uh, the, the early church fathers confessed regarding eternal punishment long before uh, Constantine was a glimmer in, his, in the eyes of his mommy and daddy. So the question, where did they get this idea from? Where did they get it from? We'll get to that in a minute, but let's continue with the sermon. Number one, I am not a universalist. Number two, I'm not a heretic. I don't think, as far as I know, I'm not. And, and number three, I do believe in a place that the Bible calls hell because the Bible talks about it. Now, I... now listen carefully to the details of this place called hell. Listen carefully to his details. I've been accused of not believing in that place for whatever reason. I mean, in fact, I was stuck in a traffic jam. I'm talking gridlock in the Metroplex in the Fort Worth, Dallas area with, with, with my mother-in-law, of all things. And, and, and she was quite concerned that I didn't believe in hell. And I was like, look, I'm stuck with you in a traffic jam talking about theology. Yes, I believe in a literal hell. If I didn't be- before, I do now. So now, now maybe for you, for you, for you, the, just the whole concept of hell, it, it's just confusing. And, and it's been something that it's just easier for you not to think about. And, you know, it's just kind of been that journey that just doesn't feel very good. And, and some emotional buttons get pushed when people talk about hell because maybe you've been manipulated by it. And, and you were raised maybe in a church where people talked about it and you were just scared as a kid. And so you just don't even like to think about it. And, and I totally get that. I also believe that maybe a lot of us uh, get sort of our picture and, and idea of hell from other things besides the Bible like far side cartoons or, or even a chick track and you have the devil with his pitchfork and his horns and slew foot and that whole thing. And in fact, I was, there's actually a far side cartoon that I sort of liked. It, it was this uh, split picture and one side was heaven and the other side was hell. And it had all of the stereotypes of heaven and hell and heaven. It had clouds and stuff. And then on the hell side, there were flames and there were two captions. And on the heaven side, it said, welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. And they were passing out harps. And then on the hell side, it said, welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. And I don't know why. I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, I, I think we have some misconceptions about hell. I, I think I do. I think you do. I think the church does. But I also think we have some misconceptions about heaven. I mean, I kid you not. I was listening to a preacher preach one time. And I hope that you never do this to me. But when he was preaching, I was in that place where I was starting to zone out. And I was thinking about anything but what he was preaching. And I was looking at my watch thinking, really, he's still going. And, but, but then he said something. And, and we've all said this, say it at funerals or whatever. But he said something, and it just made me kind of perk up, and, and it made me think. He said this with all good intentions. He said, in heaven, you'll be surrounded by your family and loved ones for all eternity. 
And, and then I went, you know, I just kind of, that got my attention. And then I was thinking, okay, I moved three states over to get away from these people. Now, seriously, all eternity? Because you're not talking about heaven to me. And, and I, I just, I believe that when we approach doctrine and when we approach theology, we have to have a sense of humility. And we have to understand that we don't know everything. Um, I completely agree with him, but God's word speaks to these things. So humility is not required when it comes to confessing what God's word um, says. Well, it's required in this sense. You need to put away your false doctrine, your false ideas, your false philosophies, and you need to bend the knee to what God's word reveals. So, yeah. There is some humility, but that's not how he's using it. You know, if if you're certain, if you're speaking boldly about what God's word says regarding this, that's not being humble. That's being arrogant. Yeah, the way he's using the phrase is the postmodern way, which flips it upside down and backwards. Now, I believe that the Bible uses metaphors and imagery to describe both good and bad literal realities. And the reason that I believe that the Bible uses metaphors and imagery is because it does. It's a fact. So you look at, say, the New Testament, and hell is described from everything from outer darkness to fire. Now, now forgive me for being the one to point out the obvious, but you can't have darkness and fire at the same time. No, 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 no. By the way, this is a classic liberal argument. You can't have fire and darkness at the same time. Therefore, that, uh, this is just metaphorical language. Hmm. Let's take a look at uh, what Jesus says regarding these things. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Matthew, chapter 13. Because this is one of those places where Jesus speaks metaphorically, and then gives us the literal interpretation. Jesus speaks literally first, and then gives us the literal interpretation. So the wonderful thing about this passage is that um, is that we have a literal interpretation of a metaphorical uh, story. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, it says this, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and then bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, here's the deal. Obviously, we're speaking metaphorically, okay? And so, you know, what does all of this mean? This is a coded parable there's there's word pictures being used to describe different peoples and different things and so what are the literal things here because uh in some sense this is talking about us but uh, weeds wheat uh fire harvesters what's all this about so it what just so happens 
that uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, the apostles, come, or the disciples come to Jesus and they don't understand the parable of the weeds and they need Jesus to explain it. So Jesus gives the interpretation. Now, a lot of people try to interpret Jesus's interpretation. You don't get to do that. Jesus gave his interpretation of the metaphor and his interpretation stands without your interpretation. Got it? Here's what it says. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Uh, okay, so there's, there's, so good seed, the one who sows it, that's Jesus. The field, that's the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So here's what he says. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all law breakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus takes the metaphor and gives the literal interpretation. You don't get to change his interpretation. He says that the lawbreakers and all causes of evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, do we have more examples of what it is that Jesus is talking about? Because there's an important hermeneutical principle that people need to be aware of and apply, and that is, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Where Scripture is talking about the same topic, the same doctrine, the same concept, you can bring passages together to create a fuller picture. It's not ripping them out of context and stringing them together because what you're doing here is you're taking one passage that talks about this one topic and another passage that's talking about that same topic, and you can bring them together in order to get a fuller understanding of what God's Word reveals in those things. So the answer is yes, okay? So if you have your Bible, let's go on over to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats. Okay, here's what it says. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Now, immediately, you should be going, okay, Jesus talked about this. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 13. This is the same topic, remember? So at the close of the age, when the Son of Man comes in glory, he's going to send his angels out, right? This is the same topic. Same, same, same same topic. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Did we not hear about the separation in Matthew 13? Yes, we did. 
Okay, he will place the sheep on his right. You can say the sons of the kingdom, the wheat on his right. And on his left, the goats. That would be the sons of the evil one, the weeds, um, the zazania. That's the Greek word for it. The weeds, uh, the, the unbelievers on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you as you did to one of the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. Notice here, the least of these, my brothers, this is not talking about social justice. This is about clothing and feeding and caring for Jesus's brothers, the apostles, his preachers whom he sends. I think that's really what's going on here. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. Notice that Jesus describes their punishment as being thrown into the eternal fire. Now, let's go back in our minds mentally to Matthew chapter 13. In Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the weeds, Jesus makes it clear that the weeds are gathered up and thrown into the fire. And then Jesus, in his interpretation, says, just as the weeds are gathered up and burned, so the sons of the evil one are going to be gathered up and thrown into the fiery furnace. So using the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture, where we're talking about the same topic, Jesus here now is making it clear that the fiery furnace is described as the eternal, or the fire eternal, okay? Eternal modifying the word fire. That's on purpose. It's not that the fire is going to burn for a long time. It's that the inhabitants who are in it are going to be in it eternally. Okay, And it was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will all answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and clothed and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice eternal life and eternal punishment are spoken in the same breath in the same sentence. To deny that the punishment is eternal is to deny that eternal life is eternal. You can't do it grammatically. It doesn't make any sense. So this is what the scriptures teach. Now this answers the question that I asked or posed earlier. Where did the uh, early church fathers get the idea that the wicked would be punished eternally in eternal fire? Answer, they got it from Jesus. They were taught it by the apostles. The apostles who founded, who basically went out and preached and proclaimed Christ and him crucified for our sins and got the whole church enterprise rolling, planted the first churches, they taught their disciples, who are the church fathers, that there is going to be a day of judgment and etern- and Christ himself is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead and cast the wicked into eternal fire. 
So the church fathers, who I quoted and showed prior to Constantine, Constantine, confessed and believed and clearly taught eternal punishment in eternal fire. They got it from the apostles, and the apostles got it from Jesus. Here's the text that prove it. Okay. Now there's one other passage I want to bring into your attention. Okay. It's found in the book of Revelation. Let me find it real quick here. It's at the very end of the book, if you would. It's uh, in Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to start at verse 14. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Here's what it says. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Mm-hmm. When you go back and you read that in in, um, in context, you'll realize that Revelation chapter 20 is describing that same event that Jesus discusses in Matthew chapter 13, as well as Matthew chapter 25, the great day of his return in glory when he sends the angels out. It's the day of judgment. And it says on that day, death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus talks about into the fire, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all his angels. Matthew 25. Jesus talks about the fiery furnace. Matthew 13. Here, the apostle John, who saw this as a as a basically as a vision and a revelation, when he you know he went up to heaven and saw this, God revealed this to him. Again, the scriptures are clear and they are consistent. So now the question is, how on earth do you avoid this? Because your sins that you've committed against God have earned this. So have mine, by the way. So how how, how do you avoid this? The answer is you repent of your wickedness. You confess that you are wrong, that you are by nature a sinner. You confess that you have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, and you trust the good, comforting words of the gospel that Christ bled and died for you, paid your punishment for you, suffered the wrath of God for you on the cross, and that God has pardoned you as a result of Christ. Repent and believe this good news. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what the scriptures teach, clearly and unambiguously. And Tommy Sparger, unfortunately, is not going to teach this, as you're about to see. We continue. Do not conclude that I'm a heretic. Wait at least a week. And if you have issues, if you want to talk with me, I'm an open book. Send me emails at joefreeman at northpointchurch.tv or, or, or anybody but Tommy dot northpointchurch dot... No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not kidding, actually. But anyway, here is my definition of hell. If, if you want to know my definition of hell, it, it is this. Okay, already we got a problem. Here's my definition of hell. No, 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 no. What is the Bible's definition? How, ha, how does God define hell? 
How does God reveal hell to be defined? Not your definition. You're not to have your own definition. I'm not to have my own definition. We are to approach the Scriptures humbly, remember, which means we need to humbly bend the knee and receive from God what he has, refe- what he has revealed and believe it, confess it, and proclaim it. It is that place where God is not. It is a lot like Oklahoma, if you really think about it. It's, I'm kidding. Okay, come back because I'm getting serious now. That my definition of hell is it is the place where God is not, and heaven, well, that's the place where God is. That, that's in his presence. And separation from that, the absence of that, that is hell. And okay, that's his definition. But is that the definition offered in Scripture? Answer, not even close. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the book of Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, I'm going to start at verse 9. Here's what it says. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So Tommy Sparger's personal definition falls short of what God has revealed. I'm sorry, but it makes it very clear in Scripture that those who are in hell are not away from God's presence, but that they are suffering in the very presence of God's angels and of the Lamb. That's what the Scriptures teach. So already we've got a problem because Tommy Sparger is giving us his definition, not the biblical one. And I believe that that's why on this earth we create a little bit of heaven and we can also create a little bit of hell. And you see it. You see it all around us. You, you, see, you see glimpses of glory in heaven, and you also see the horrors of hell on this earth. Now, now here's my goal for this series, and this is what we're starting today. My goal Sounds to me like he's bought into Rob Bell's heresy hook, line, and sinker. He believes the same thing because he's using Rob Bell's definition and speaking Rob Bell's language, not the biblical way of speaking. goal for this series, and I think that, that this with all of my heart, I believe that every person on this planet, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whatever religion that you're a part of, I believe that every person needs to have an understanding of hell and not just sweep the idea under the rug to worry about later because I think that's kind of what we do because the subject matter is such a a tension, a a, a kind of a horrible subject in our minds that we kind of put it off. But, But to put it off and not fully understand it, I think is not to understand something about God. So it's my go throughout this series that we will look at face to face and, and conclude what we think the Bible says about it and, and with all humility come to grips with what that means for our own personal spiritual journeys. Now, that in mind, I want to offer you two thoughts. And, and the first thought is this. Understanding hell is crucial to understanding your own heart. And, and it really is. The person 
in the Bible that talk more about hell than anybody else? And this may surprise you. The person in the Bible that talked more about hell than any other person was Jesus. And, and, and there was a day that, that he told this parable or this story about the afterlife. And I want to share that with you today. It's found in Luke chapter 16. He shares this parable about the afterlife. And, and here's my guess. If you're normal, you've had thoughts about the afterlife. Whatever you believe in or don't believe in, whether you're a Christian or not, even if you're an atheist, I would assume at some one point you thought about what could there be in the great beyond. So Jesus tells his parable about the afterlife. Now, what you have to understand is that in his day and in his culture, when they told parables, what these were, were stories. And these were made up stories that that they would invent to drive home a truth. And in his case, Jesus is a spiritual truth. So what we're going to read today, and we're going to read this whole parable, it's a metaphor. It's it's not literal. You, You don't take every literal thing he says and create a theology out of it. He is driving home a spiritual point. That in mind, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, we're going to read this whole parable, and it's a little... Okay, by the way, this is exactly why I went to Matthew chapter 13, because Jesus begins speaking metaphorically and then gives us the interpretation so that we can build a proper theology. And that's why I showed you the cross-references to Matthew chapter 13 is Matthew 25 and then Revelation chapter 20. They all teach the same thing. And so here, here's the deal. When we then, with our understanding then from the clear passages of what Jesus said in Matthew 13, Matthew 25, and Revelation chapter 20, can we then make sense of what's going on in Luke 16? The answer is yes. The picture that we see in Luke 16 is still consistent, 100% consistent with the literal interpretation that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 13. But Tommy's not going there. He's going to Matthew 16 and then basically saying, don't, don't, don't take these literal. But he's omitting the other one, the other passages that give us the clear and literal understanding that we can build our theology on, which I have shown from the ancient church fathers, is consistent also with what the church has confessed from the beginning. There's a reason for that. Let's continue. Freaky. So buckle up. Here we go. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, back then, that's what the rich people dressed in, in purple. Back then. These days, strange people dress in purple. I'm just kidding. Those of you wearing purple, you're cool. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Everybody say gross. Two people think that's gross. Really? (laughs) Dogs come and lick on you and you're good with that. Okay, everybody say gross. One, two, three. Gross. (laughs) Okay, uh, I'm preaching about hell and laughing and have a good time. I don't, uh, all right, and the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, 
Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so, so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but, but if someone from the dead goes to them, well, they're going to repent. And he said to them, If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, now let me first of all say this. If, if you notice, Abraham says to the rich man, In your lifetime, you receive good things. Now, I want to talk just for a moment about sin, because when we talk about the afterlife and eternity and heaven and hell, sin is a huge part of this drama. Now, I believe that sin is building your identity and your life on anything other than God. Well, that's fine and dandy that you believe that, but that's not what God's word reveals. Sin is missing the mark, and the mark can be clearly defined through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of those set the mark. So sin is missing the mark. And the mark is what God has commanded us in his law. So when you fall short of that, you sin. That's how the Bible defines sin. Notice that what we're dealing here with Tommy Sparger is somehow a false belief on his part that he can just believe whatever he wants to believe the Bible teaches. That's a problem. Big one. Now, now, this is exactly what this rich man is doing. He understands the things of God. He's around the things of God. But instead of building his life on the foundation of God, he's building his life on things, on things and, and stuff. And, and now, this is Tommy Sparger's own theology. This is not the theology of the New Testament, and this is not the theology that the church has confessed and taught from the beginning. How do I know? Because I know how to read the creeds. Because I, I've read the church fathers. What the church has believed, taught, and confessed from the beginning is clearly laid out in that. And this is something completely different, something completely foreign. In fact, this is almost a psychologized understanding of the world. And that's where he is. I also believe when it comes to sin that everyone in this world is plagued by sin, that we're born into it, that it is a disease. And at its core... What sin does is separate us from the presence of God. Now, remember what I said, that, that heaven is the place where the presence of God is. And hell is that place that is the absence of the presence of God. And Yet, Revelation 14 makes it clear that those in hell, that they suffer their torment in the very presence of God and the angels. His definition doesn't hold up against the clear teaching of the Word of God. And, and so sin at its core drives you from the presence of God. That's what sin is. I also believe that sin carries with it all of the distinctives, distinctives of an addiction. And by that, I mean self-destruction, denial, isolation. Now, if the Bible is right, and, and just pretend for a moment, no matter what you believe in or don't believe in, just pretend that it is. If the Bible is right and our souls are going to go on living forever and ever and ever and ever and a million years from now, we're just getting started and forever and ever and, 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 and we are finding our identity in something other than God. Something other than God. Where does the Bible talk about finding our identity in something other than God? What are you talking about? God is on the throne and, and if we are addicted to this thing called sin, what does that mean? And what does it look like? a million years from now and two million years from now.
So apparently sin is just, well, it's an addiction. And so that means that the gospel is you going through a 12-step program in order to break your addiction. Am I not right? Now, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis here. Hey, um, I'm sorry, but C.S. Lewis, if you're going to quote C.S. Lewis, you need to quote C.S. Lewis in light of the clear teachings of the Word of God, what's found in the Bible. There's some things that Lewis writes regarding eternal punishment that I flat out disagree with. Why? Because God's Word doesn't teach it. So C.S. Lewis, his ideas are to be judged by the clear teaching of the Word of God. Because he's smart. He's smarter than me. So check this out. He says Christianity asserts that we're going to go on forever, and that must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 80 years or so, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct term for it. He goes on to say, it is not a question of whether God sends us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up that will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. He goes on to say, and this is one of my favorite quotes from him, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. We lock- Now that's a fine quote, But the reality is, is that's not what the scriptures teach. People are thrown into hell. Fuck them. So this whole notion of hell is this. You, I, we want our addiction. We want our thing. We want our stuff. We want our priorities. We want, we want, we want, we want, we want those things more than we actually want out of this place where we are separated from God and the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Now, now let me just show you a couple of verses. And these are really interesting verses. Romans chapter one, verse 21. And if you were raised in church, you'll recognize these verses. And there may have been times when you read these verses and they're kind of hard to read. You know, they give you kind of one of those weird feelings. But in, in, in others of you, maybe you weren't raised in church and you don't know a ton about the Bible. But, but listen, when you hear this, it's, it's just, I think it's going to register. It's going to like... Okay, I'm going to point something out here. Revelation chapter 1 is not about hell. Okay, let's read it in context. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Paul begins a very long argument, and that's the right way of, of talking about it. Here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So they got revelation about God in the creation. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, notice the the way the argument there. 
Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, this does demonstrate God's wrath because the Apostle Paul says here that this is a temp, this is the temporal punishment for sin. But you'll notice what's missing in this passage. Nowhere in this passage does it say this is what hell is. This is what eternal punishment means. It's not what the passage says. So what he's doing here, he's taking a passage that isn't about hell and trying to pass it off as if it is about hell. And he's redefining hell in light of this passage, but this passage isn't about hell. We continue. Spark your attention. So Romans one twenty one. it says, For although they knew God, they neither glory... Now, now, let me stop there. They knew God. They knew the things of God. They, they understood where His Spirit was, where to find Him. They got all of that. But, 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 although they knew God... Yeah, again, you, you didn't read this in context because it's talking about every human and that the creation declares the glory of God and, his, and who He is, and they reject that. They even reject the revelation of God in creation. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, now when they know God, but they don't want him and they run and they separate, then what does God do? And, and we get that in, in several of the next verses. And, and I'm going to read a few of these verses and I want you to try to pick out a theme, something that keeps happening. Check it out. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. See it? Verse 28, verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to, to a depraved mind. Now, now, what is that? God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Is that cruelty? Cruelty on God's part? It's, it's not. What is God doing? giving them the keys to the car because they want control. I mean, the truth of the matter is this. We do have free choice. And, and, and what they have said over and over and over to God, God, we know you, we know you, but we don't want to know you. And we want you to leave us alone. And I want it my way. And I want my thing. I want my addiction. I want my sin. I want my riches. I want my anything but you. And I don't want you bugging me. And in the end, 
God gives them exactly what they are begging him to give them. He gives them over. He gives them their free choice. He gives them the separation that they're asking for. And this is exactly what the Bible calls hell. No, it doesn't. You are lying, Tommy. Did you catch that? This he, He's quoting a passage that talks about God's temporal punishment against sin. And he's saying that this is what the Bible calls hell. No, it doesn't at all. He's taking a verse, a passage out of context and applying it to the definition of eternal punishment. And that's not what Scripture says at all. Tommy is a flat-out heretic, and he's twisting God's word, and he's not telling these people the truth. And the reality is is that this telling that he tells then ends up distorting the gospel that he preaches so that it's no longer the biblical gospel. Their choice, not God's. Now, 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 note the rich man in this parable. Look at him. He, 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 he wants it his way. He still wants it his way. This dude is in hell, and he's in total denial about his situation. He expects Lazarus to come and still be his servant like he was on earth. He's still holding on to his status that he had on earth. He never even asked to get out of hell. He just wants Lazarus in. And he strongly insinuates that that God didn't give him enough information. And and he's doing a lot of things, but but one of those things is not trying even to repent. Now, Now, here's what I believe. And I believe this with all of my heart. And, and if you do- doesn't matter if you believe it with all of your heart, if, it, if it's wrong, it's wrong, flat out. It's either true or false. And whether you believe it with your whole heart or not doesn't matter a hill of beans. Mormons believe Mormonism with all of their heart. Polygamous Mormons believe with all of their heart that because they practice polygamy, that they will become gods. That does not mean that that's, ex- that's what's going to happen to them when they die disagree with this, you can. And, uh, and that's fine. We can agree to disagree. But, but here's what I believe. I believe that hell is a choice. I believe that. And, and this whole idea that God is throwing people into some kind of pit and, and they are scratching to get up the side of that pit and he's kicking them back down laughing or he has a system. Um, by the way, the scriptures do make it clear that God throws them and casts them into the lake of fire. But notice at this point he's creating a caricature and misrepresenting what the Bible teaches regarding hell so that he can overthrow the caricature and teach a different doctrine or an entity or a person kicking them back down, laughing. I I don't buy that because that comes way more from Dante's Inferno than it does the Bible. It it just does. Now, now, C.S. Lewis says this also. He says, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Wipe out past sins and give them a fresh start? He did that on Calvary. To forgive them, they're not asking for forgiveness. To leave them alone, because that's what hell is. And, and, and this is C.S. Lewis. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy, your will be done. All who are in hell chose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't even be hell.
That's what C.S. Lewis says. Now, now, let me read to you a Rob Bell quote on this subject of choice. Now, let me say something about Rob Bell because he has a book out called Love Wins and it's been very controversial. People, before they even read it, were blogging about it. So um, he, he, I'm not here to defend his theology or attack it. You can read it yourself and come to your own conclusions. Uh, but here's what I do think of him. I think he's done a lot for the kingdom of God. Yeah, a lot of destruction. I, I think he's a great guy. I think he loves God. I think he's a pantheist and a heretic. We've used some of his curriculum around here for our small groups. Uh, I, I've read some of his books. I, I think he's great. Here's what I believe about that situation. Now, that should tell you something. I think you should avoid Tommy Sparger's church like the plague, like as if your very soul depends upon it. Like if you believe the t- doctrines taught there, you might end up in hell. That's how serious this error is. Situation To me, it's not even a matter of Rob Bell and his theology. It's a matter of the state of where the church is right now. I believe that he was treated by the Christian community like crap. I just believe it. I, I think we judge first and ask questions second. And Really? It's, it, so it's, it's not as if Rob Bell put a video out promoting the book that literally just flat out assaulted the doctrine of eternal punishment. It's not like Rob Bell did that. Like, you know, uh, he's just an innocent guy who was just walking down the street, minding his own business, you know, writing poetry, emergent poetry, and all of a sudden a big band of nasty, uh, horrible, terrible Christians ganged up on him for no good reason. Oh, um, I don't know where that comes from, but I don't like it, honestly. But, but here's what Rob Bell says. Here's what he says. Jesus is teaching about hell, a volatile mixture of images, pictures, and metaphors that describe the very real experiences and consequences of rejecting our God-given goodness and humanity. Again, our choice. So understanding hell is crucial to understanding your own heart. Now, my second point, you may have one of those what you talking about Willis moments. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents, I guess. I'm getting old. But it, n- number two, understanding hell is crucial to understanding the love of God. Now, that's, you may say, what in the world? And, and, and here's what I'm just asking you. Hang with me. Track with me. Don't zone out. Take your medication. <laughs> do whatever you need to do. Give me five minutes here. Now, th- this un- understanding, understanding hell is crucial to understanding the love of God. Now, now back to this parable. This rich man wants Abraham to send somebody back from the dead to warn his family of hell. And Abraham's response to this is, it's not going to work. I've been around longer than you. That's not going to work. In other words, the fear of hell will not keep you out of hell. It, it will work like for 15 minutes at some bizarre youth camp, maybe. But that's it. It's, it's temporary. It's not. It's, and, and sometimes I feel sorry for some of you that were raised in this place where you were just, hell was held over you and you're in fear. And, because the fear of hell is not going to keep you out of hell. Now, here's the rub. And here's the tension. Evangelicals love them some fear of hell. They love it. They love it. They, they love to use the fear of hell over people because it's a control thing. And we have to control. But if nothing else, practice. Right. The only reason why evangelicals preach about hell is a control thing.
It's not like the early church taught it. It's not like the apostles taught it. It's not like Jesus taught it. No, this is something they made up in order to control people. Right. Pragmatically, it just doesn't work. And, 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 it, and I think that's the reason they were so upset with Rob Bell. He's taking away their one issue of control at North Point. Yeah, see, that's the reason why these, these nasty bloggers and, and discernmentalists attacked Rob Bell is because it, for them, it's all about control. That's the re- See, Rob Bell, he was walking down the street, minding his own business, reading and reciting emergent poetry when, you know, like... You know, like one of those flash mobs. It was, it was, a, it was a, an evil flash mob of of criminal discernment activity that gang people ganged up against him because they were threatened by his emergent poetry and knew that his emergent poetry would lead to a loss of control of the people that they manipulate and control. So they preemptively struck him and beat him into the ground in order to protect the control that they hold over everybody through their erroneous and non-biblical doctrine of hell. Are you buying any of this? I'm not. I don't use the turn and burn tactics. I just don't. It's not me. It's manipulative. I don't think it's like Christ. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's pointless. It just doesn't work. So, so, so if the fear of hell won't change your heart, what will? And, and again, and we talked about this for the last couple of weeks, the bottom line of heaven is change lives, change hearts. I believe that with, all, with everything that I am. So, so if the fear of hell is not going to change a human heart, what will? The bottom line, the only of, heaven, thing- the bottom line of heaven changed lives? Yeah, that's not what the Bible teaches that can change the fundamental structures of a person's heart, and this should come as no surprise to us, is love. The most simple definition in your Bible of God is love. The only thing that can change a person's heart is radical love. Passionate, unconditional love. Jesus says, love God, love one another. That's the law, and that's the thing that condemns you. Good night. Does he even read his New Testament? No, you're my disciples if you love one another, not if you freak them out and scare the beep out of them. That's not what he said. Now, 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 hang with me. Hang with me. Hang with me. Speaking of that love, let's now talk about how understanding hell is crucial to understanding the love of God. Now, if you're never going to hear another thing that I will say in my entire lifetime, that's fine. But hear this one thing. Love is what sent Jesus to the cross. Now, all of the sin, all of the separation, all of the hell. Can you make sense of the cross for me, please? I mean, why would, if, I mean, if, you know, hell is just something of our own choosing. That we're, and we're not really going to be punished by God eternally. Then why did Jesus have to be punished by God? Because the scriptures say that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Why would Jesus have to suffer on the cross and pay the penalty and punishment for our sins if God isn't going to punish sinners? Hmm? 
The cross doesn't make any sense without hell, sir. That, that would ever be he dealt with on the cross. Now, I do not fully comprehend that. You're not going to fully comprehend that in your lifetime. But, but, but love sent him to that cross and all of the hell and the separation and the sin. He dealt with it on the cross. He took it. He took it for you and he took it for me. Why did he take it? I don't understand why he would take it. I, what, I don't understand it. And you're never going to know the depths of God's love until you believe in and have an understanding of hell and the separation that comes with it so, so that you can understand the depths which God went to to win you over. Now, 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 now listen, he took it on the cross. The Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. And on the cross, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? On the cross... God's son, the Messiah, the, the, what we call the spotless lamb, the, 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 the king of the world. On the cross, he experiences eternal agony. And, and so many of us, we live in North America. We've heard this, we've heard this, we've heard this. It's lost its meaning. Listen, let it sink into your heart. He experiences eternal agony. He experiences the separation of sin. He experienced the isolation of hell. He took it for you and he took it for me. That's love. Love really does. What do you mean he took it for you and he took it for me? If we're not going to be punished eternally for our sins, if we persist in them and refuse to be forgiven then it doesn't make any sense. It's like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. You're trying to make sense of the cross, but the cross doesn't make sense with Jesus being punished if God does not intend to punish sinners. Does win. Now, 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 now. You can go out there and take all kinds of different ideas about hell and piece them all together, and you can believe or preach whatever you want, I suppose. I suppose you can do that. Just preach whatever you want. It doesn't matter what, what is truth. Just preach whatever you want. And, and it's a free world. Have at it. You can turn God into a cruel person that's going to go fry most of his creation one day, which is, to me, a little... Which is completely, completely a caricature that you've made up. and ca- you're, you're going to judge God for holding people accountable for their sins. Really? You're going to cast doubt on his character and turn him into the monster when you're the one who's rebelled against him. Really? Hitler-esque. You, you can do that if you want. I don't buy it. So, some of you here today, you, you, you are turned off to the whole subject of hell and maybe even church because the whole issue has been used to manipulate you. You want my honest opinion? I think you're a hero for even being here today. I, you know what? I used to, and I know this is going to sound negative, when I, when I first became a Christian, I used to always think I was at a disadvantage because I wasn't raised in church. Now, just almost daily, I get up and thank God I wasn't because I didn't have to like be freaked out with the rapture like you guys were and go to some of the things that you guys went to. Now, I know for some of you, you're like, no, 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 I have a great heritage in Sunday school and camp counselor, and, and that's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome. And so many of you, you owe your spiritual life to that heritage, but there are some of you here today. 
and, and, and you are just coming back to church and you're hanging on by a string because the, the, this subject matter and others like it has been used to manipulate you and, and it was a mind trick for you. And again, you're my hero for even being here today. Thank you for being here. And, and this is a journey for you. You may not have complete resolve today, but you will have it before it's over with. There's others of you here today that, that frankly, you're just confused about this whole idea of a loving God, and yet there's a place called hell, and intellectually, it's just hard for you to buy it. It's hard for you to swallow it. I fully get that, and, and this is a safe place for you to come, nor point is, and ask questions and go on a spiritual journey and, and just be honest, and, and, and that's fine. Now, 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 listen, we're just starting this series and we're going to be asking a lot of questions, and we're going to be covering a lot of territory, and we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture. But here's my hope for every person here. And, and this, we may not have complete conclusion with that to this today, but I hope a journey starts. Here's my hope for every person, whether you've been a Christian for the last 20 years or you're new at this or you are young or you are old or you are black or you are white or you are married or you're a grandparent or you're a student or you're going to college or you're in high school, no matter who you are, what your ideology is, here's my hope. And I hope this begins in this series, and I hope a seed is planted, and I hope it grows. I hope you start to see God as the creative, passionate genius that he is. And that's what I hope. I hope that, that you begin to understand that there is a method to his madness, because there is. And I hope you begin to understand that you are a part of his plan, because you are. And some of you, maybe you feel like you've screwed up way too much and he doesn't care and he doesn't have anything for you. You're wrong. He has a plan for you. I hope you begin to understand how much he's going to pursue you, how much he loves you, and that he took sin and he took hell and he took separation upon himself. And there's nothing that he wouldn't do for you. Honestly, there's nothing that he wouldn't do for you. Now, you can choose to have nothing to do with him if you want because you do have free choice. You can choose that. And I hope you don't, but you can. But, but can I just say this? And this is so true. If you choose that, if you choose separation from God, if you, if you choose to have a wall between you and him, that's your choice. It, it is not God's. That's not his purpose for you. Let's pray. So there you have it. Um, Tommy Sparger, you better believe that his view regarding hell absolutely infects and distorts his understanding of the gospel. That wasn't what he, he wasn't doing biblical preaching there. He wasn't correctly handling God's word. He didn't speak the truth about eternal punishment. As a result of it, the gospel he's preaching is a different gospel. That is the only correct conclusion that you can come to. Pray for Tommy Sparger. Pray that he's brought to repentance and that the clear teaching of the Word of God and the biblical gospel would be what he instead embraces, teaches, and confesses. Because what he's doing right now, what you just heard, that was Rob Bell's false teaching basically being taught to thousands upon thousands of seeker-driven church attendees as if that's what the Bible teaches. Yeah, false doctrine matters. It's going to matter to those thousands of people. Because if they persist in that false gospel, not much hope. Pray that they're brought to repentance and the truth would come out and that they would believe it and repent of their false doctrine that they just heard and were taught by Tommy Sparger.
All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, we truly do need your help. You visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. You talk about them all the time here. And thank you, thank you, thank you for those of you who have supported us and for those of you who will support us by visiting our website. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross, penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins and mine, which doesn't make sense unless God punishes sinners for their sins. Amen. Amen.